of Revelation. And uh, it's hard sometimes. You read these portions of Scripture and you hear, you know, the things that are taking place. And you're, um, you know, I have this kind of this, almost this vengeance kind of thing, you know, when you consider how evil things are. And yet it is the Lord who has to work all of these things out according to his perfect plan. Amen? According to his perfect timing. And we're right in the middle of here in chapter 16 of God pouring out his vials of judgment upon the earth dwellers who are currently dwelling on the earth at this time during this portion of scripture. So we'll be reading together. We'll be reading Revelation chapter 16 verses 8 through 11. And uh, we're going to go have a little math lesson tonight. There's, there's so many important things. You know, you talk about worldviews and having a biblical worldview and, and looking at Scripture as your authority. Amen? I mean, you ask the average person today, how old is the earth? Now, I could ask over in my family over here. I'm pretty sure Dean's family back over here. And I'm pretty sure Keith's family and, 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 and all the rest of us in here who are Bible believers. Amen? The earth's not 45 billion years old because it keeps getting older and older and older. You know what I mean? And so tonight, just through a simple understanding of the authority of Scripture, we're going to see that as God alters the sun during this particular vial, as he pours this out, for 6,000 years, just a little over 6,000 years, which is what I believe the earth is. Amen? It's just a little over 6,000 years. We'll, look at, we'll do some math tonight just for uh, an interesting study. And it's more than just a exercise in fertility. It is an exercise in understanding the authority and the biblical truths that the Bible contains. So this evening, we're going to do that just for a little bit, not to sidetrack. It's not a sidetrack. It's just a simple lesson in Scripture and understanding it. Look there, if you would, Revelation chapter 16. We'll be reading verses again 8 through 11 this evening. These are indeed the words of God. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. And power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. There's going to be some real global sun tanning going on, brothers and sisters. You know what I'm saying? And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God. Just, I mean, it's just amazing what we see here. Amen. They blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. Verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. And what? Blasphemed God. So in between the gnawing of the tongue, uh, in the pain that they're in, they take a few minutes in evil, corrupted hearts to go ahead and just blaspheme God in between the gnawings of their tongue. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing picture of the depravity of men. It really is. And the fifth angel, verse 10, poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they nod their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. Well, as I said, brother, we are indeed right in the middle. We've already seen three vials of judgment poured out upon the earth. This evening, as we take up our text together, we enter here into the fourth vial that God directs the fourth angel to pour out on the sun. And in fact, the sun, which came into, again, brothers, let's just ask a simple Bible question tonight. What day of the, of the week was the sun, the moon, and the stars created? Any, anybody know? Let me just hold up my hand. The fourth day. And here we have the fourth vial that God tells the fourth angel to pour out on that which was created on the fourth day. It's quite a stunning thing when you consider that nothing God does is ever by accident. It is directed by him and uh, always with order. Amen. It's an amazing thing. John tells us here that the sun, the heat, is allowed to scorch the bodies of men. And this is what we see. Amen. It is a, if you will, a divinely directed, I call it my own little mind, flamethrower. He alters the sun. He causes it, amen, through this judgment to be altered. And the heat then is scorching. It, that word literally means to burn, to affect painfully with heat. Now listen, brothers. You study this stuff out. And again, I don't want to keep diverting, but I want you all as Bible believers to understand the intricacies of God's creation. It is a stunning thing. When I was studying this out, just understanding and seeing how the planets are, where they're particularly placed, 
by God himself. The earth just miraculously placed where it is exactly as it orbits around the sun, exactly as it is supposed to do. Any closer, we're going to burn up like that. Any farther away, there would be no life. I mean, it's an amazing thing. All orchestrated by God himself. All being held together by God himself. All spoken into creation, into existence by God himself. It is a stunning thing to consider. According to Answers in Genesis and Creation Ministries International, the surface temperature of the sun is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Anybody know what they've, they've uh, calculated out, the inner core of the sun? Anybody have any idea how hot the inner core of the sun is? According to Answers in Genesis, and, and look, I, I trust these guys. I trust these guys. I trust the other ministry that, that I've mentioned here. And they've calculated it to be somewhere around 25 million degrees in its core. It's stunning. Now, all of us know, brothers and sisters, listen, that if all of that, if God allowed that heat to just enter into the earth's atmosphere, just let it go and didn't control it, we would burn up like that. We would burn up instantly. Instantly, we'd be a vapor. But you know what God did, again, in his glorious creation? The earth that's rotating. You know, you know there's a big push now, flat. You know, the earth is flat. I mean, it's amazing. It's infecting the, uh, the, uh, the IFB churches. It's a stunning thing. But as, as the earth is rotating on its axis and it's going around the sun, it is an amazing creation. It's an amazing, stunning thing. And what God did is, as you know, he put a shield. <laughs> again, when he spoke it into existence, again, if you've got 10,000 degrees just at will coming into the atmosphere, we would burn up. But what does he do? He puts in a, a magnetic ring, literally, canopy, if you will, around the earth's atmosphere. And you know what that does? It precisely and perfectly allows the correct amount of sun rays and sun heat to come into the earth, to warm the earth, to have life and to have those things. I mean, brother, that didn't happen by accident. Now you look and consider what God is doing here with this fourth vial. He's simply altering what he's already spoken and put into place and is perfectly watching it orbit and do the things that it's doing. He's simply altering it just a little bit and allowing it, if you will, to put off a little more of the heat, <laughs> a little more of the rays, if you will, to enter into those who are on the earth so that do, they do indeed have, if, if, as John says, has pains and scorches and those sorts of things, brethren, which is a much bigger picture of what God is already teaching them just by doing what he did with this particular plague. God alters the sun here. He actually reverses this one. Compared to what he did, you remember, in the trumpet judgment. The trumpet judgment, he did the opposite of that. I want you to see this again. God simply controlling his creation, just altering it at his word. And it changes everything. Here, it's too much heat. He's allowing it to become, as I, as I termed it myself, a divinely directed flamethrower. If you look back in Revelation chapter 8, let's just look there again. He reversed it. He did the exact opposite. He cooled it. He turned the light down, remember? I mean, just an amazing thing. Look at Revelation chapter 8. Look what he did there. He simply reversed it. And, and here, it's just the sun. In Revelation chapter 8, it's the sun, moon, and stars all created on the fourth day. He alters them, cooling things down, if you will. Look at Revelation chapter 8. Look at verse number 12. Look what the Bible says. And the fourth angel sounded. The third part of the sun was smitten. The third part of the moon and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened. And the day shone not for a third part of it. And the night likewise. So he literally altered them there. Here he's simply speaking it to do the opposite of what he did here. Which is a stunning thing, brethren. Think of that. Imagine the power that God has. He just simply says, I want this done. This is going to happen, and this is exactly what happens. Now, brethren, I want you to think about this for a moment. Since the dawn of creation, since day number one, the sun has indeed, brethren, has it not, has risen every morning and sat in its assigned place every evening, just like it did today. 
The whole time I've been alive, it comes up and it goes down, just exactly as God designed it to do, just like it did today. Life is normal, right, brethren? The sun came up, the sun's going down, setting in its assigned place. And it's amazing, again, God's graciousness. At his command, it has indeed yielded its life-giving light. It's, if you will, sustaining light for some 6,000 years now, just over some 6,000 years. How do I know that? Somebody, you know, Andy Stanley's becoming quite a, quite a, quite a talking point. If you guys haven't watched James White's latest video, Dean kind of mentioned it tonight, go watch it now and see what's happened. What J.D., well, I have another name, it rhymes with Greer, what he's doing. Every transvestite, every unholy, unimaginable, godless thing should have a safe space in our churches. And I was thinking, I was thinking about Howard. Well, that means I can be a thief. I should come and just have a nice safe space. Maybe we can have the thieves sit over here in their safe space. Maybe you're a, an adulterer. We can have the adulterers sit over here. Oh, Brother Harrison, maybe he can, you know, get him to come on. And not that you are. You'd be a fornicator because you're not married. But an adulterer. Maybe, maybe the fornicators can sit in this section over here because they need their safe space, right? I mean, evil. It's evil upon evil. But this is where it's going. This is what's happening. The churches themselves, we talk about revival. We need to pray that the Lord will send a revival in the churches. It is a stunning, amazing thing. Well, I know that the earth has been in creation and been created for roughly over 6,000 years because, <clears throat> let's say it together, because the Bible tells me so. The, can I say, the Bible tells me so. Children, they're all looking up here. The Bible tells me so, and it tells you so. Precisely how long the earth has been in existence and was created. There's not even any guesswork. There's no guesswork whatsoever. In fact, Andy Stanley should take the four-year-old's advice. I'd like to have us all stand tonight. I'm not going to, but we could all stand and sing that song that every four-year-old knows. Every three-year-old knows. Well, I think almost every two-year-old knows. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me so. I don't have to listen to the liberals. I don't have to listen to the unholy, ungodly nonsense of evolution and everything else. I turn to my authority. And brethren, this is what it is. Even our lesson, our text tonight, has to do with God's authority, with who he is and what he's doing. Let's just do a simple, quick math, should we? And again, this is homeschooling math that I used, not outcome-based math, where 2 plus 2 can be 5, or 6 if that's what you feel like. Well, let's just look real quickly, brother. This won't take us long. I want you, because this is important. This is very important to the whole authority of the text, what the Bible is and what we believe about the Bible and what we believe about what we're reading. Is God going to bring judgment or not? Yes, he is. And in his perfect, glorious timing, not Mike's vengeful spirit kind of thing, his glorious timing. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 5 for just a moment. We all understand this. We are Bible believers. Genesis chapter 5, I'm going to do this speedily, but... I just want you to, to do this and to think about this, to ponder this. For so, a little over 6,000 years, the earth has been coming up, or the sun has been coming up and going down. That brother changes here in our text. It's a stunning thing. Look at Genesis chapter 5. What we have here, brethren, is, as you know, 10 generations. We have 10 generations from Adam to Noah. And so we can understand... Uh, again, Wednesday evening. Anybody know uh, what year Noah was created? Well, year zero, year one, right? We got to start. You got to start somewhere. One. So the beginning of this text is year one, the very beginning. Look at Genesis chapter five. Look at the first three verses. Look what the Bible says there. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. 
Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Again, he's telling us that the first day of creation they were, or they were brought forth when he brought them forth. Amen? It's an amazing thing when you consider this. Well, I shouldn't say day four, day six. Day six, right? That's when they were created and, 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 and created. What I'm saying is the first year, year one. Look at what the Bible says, verse 3. And Adam lived 130 years. Well, that's the first number you've got to write down. So if we get our calculator out, that's the first number, 130 years. So they were created on uh, year one, so he's now 130 years old. That's what's passed from year one, from the day that the time that he was created, right? I mean, it's simple math. And you go down. You go to verse number 6. <clears throat> Look at verse 6. Just a couple of them here. And Seth lived in 105 years. So you had 130. You had 105. And this will tell you. You just keep right on going through this, these generations. And when you get to the end, verse 9, Enos lived 90 years. Verse 12, Canaan lived 70 years. So we're adding these up. It's not a guesswork. It is what the Bible says. Verse 15, Mahalil, 65 years, plus Jared, 162 years. Verse 21, Enoch, 65 years. Methuselah, 170, uh, 187 years. Who's Methuselah? Anybody remember who he is? He was Noah's what? Grandfather. So you just keep adding these up all along here in Genesis 5. It's real math. It's real numbers. It's what God says, right? And then Lamech, 182 years. Now, if we just simply add it all up, there's 1,056 years in these 10 generations that we see right here in Genesis chapter 5. We go on to Genesis chapter 11. It's a stunning thing. Now, God reveals the, gener the, the if you will, the posterity. He picks that up in Genesis from Shem on, which is where this ends at Noah. Then Shem is born in Genesis chapter 11. We see that gen those genealogies there. Again, historically, you see what you get there. It's an amazing thing. He reveals... The posterity of Shem, 10 generations from Shem to Abraham, specifically in Genesis 11. And again, it's very careful. You have to be very careful because Genesis 11 changes just a skosh because what it does is it takes that posterity of Shem. And you know what it does? It narrows it down to the lineage of who? Who, who, who does Genesis 11, what, what does it narrow down to? It's narrowed down to the lineage that brings forth Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which who comes from? Who does that come from? The Lord Jesus Christ, his physical birth. This is important. And so you add up the years that you find in Genesis chapter 11, and you're near about 952 years. So at that point, we've got 2,000. We've got another from the time of Abraham to Christ is about 2,000. That You see that in Matthew chapter 1. You see it in Luke chapter 1. Well, First Chronicles 1 and 2 Again, there's more history there, but if you just simply look in the New Testament, you see there's two th about 2,000 years from Abraham to the birth of Christ. From the birth of Christ, how far along are we right now? H how long ago was that? What does the Bible say? About what? 2,000 years. So let's just do the math. 2,008 plus another 2,056 plus another almost 2,000. What's that give us, brother? About 6,000 years. So the sun has been coming up and going down, at least to this point in our lives anyway. And in this text, we don't know how far out this is. It's a ways. But at least for 6,000 years, it's been coming up and setting as God has commanded it to do. And when we get to our text here again, brother, and he alters all of that. And he uses it, if you will, to bring forth judgment upon the loyal Antichrist followers as they one day awaken, as the earth dwellers awaken on the earth. And the sun indeed has been altered and changed at the command of God, whereby he brings forth blistering and scorching and diseases and all manner of things upon them because they have indeed rejected Christ. This is indeed a first glimpse of the pain. This is what they're feeling, the pain that they will indeed feel when they are first cast into hell, and then after that, what comes? 
What comes, what's cast into the lake of fire? Hell and death are then cast into the lake of fire. So here they are. They're standing literally. I like how one pastor worded it. He said they're standing on the shores of the lake of fire, and here they are. This is what they're feeling. They're getting a little glimpse of hell. They're getting a little glimpse of that place that nobody ever talks about, nobody ever wants to talk about, everybody's afraid to because it's going to chase people off. Hell is real. And what takes place there is real. And what takes place here is real. God's judgment upon them. And all he does is speak. All he does is command an angel. You go pour that vial out upon the sun. And let's see their reaction. This, this to me, brethren, is quite an amazing thing. Keeping in mind now, brethren, again, that the temple was closed. Remember that? God himself is in there. These judgments are coming from the temple, so they know full well it's God himself, the God of heaven, which we're going to see here, that is bringing these judgments upon them. Isn't it interesting? You talk to people all the time, don't you? Well, if you could prove to me that God exists. If you, if, if, I mean, if God would just come down, Right, brothers and sisters? Well, if God would just come down, I'd believe in God. No, you won't. You know why you won't? Because he already came down. And three-quarters of the earth didn't believe in him. They killed him, in fact. This is what you get here. It's amazing, isn't it? You remember, repentance has been withdrawn. The gift of faith has been withdrawn by God. Think of this for a moment. Look what they do. They know it's him. He's inflicting judgment upon them. Look there, if you would, at verse number 9. And the men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Again, brethren, even though these rebels know the true source of this scorching heat judgment, they become even harder against God. This is stunning, brother. Like you say, you always say, well, if, you know, if God came down, we... No, actually, they hardened their hearts. And this is what happens here, even though we understand repentance has been revoked. They blaspheme the name of God. They revile. They speak ill of God. In fact, they shake their puny little human hands at God. <laughs> it's a stunning thing to behold. Little human man who thinks he's God shakes his fist at God, blasphemes the God of heaven. This, of course, manifests. Listen, brother. This is manifesting what we all know true men are made of. It's manifesting that which they've inherited. It's that which is in their blood. It's that which is in their natures. And that is to blaspheme and hate God. An enemy of God. That which they're inborn with is just let loose. God just simply lifts his hand and lets them be who they are. Yeah. Remember, there was another guy. <laughs> now, this is in a different dispensation of time. But there was another guy, another man, that the Bible says God hardened his heart. Anybody know who that was specifically? Pharaoh. Remember him? Remember Pharaoh? God hardened his heart. You know how many times the Bible says that God hardened his heart? Almost too many to count. And by the time God was all done, he had lifted his hand off Pharaoh. And the last thing Pharaoh did was repent. The last thing he ever did was repent. He was a rebel against God. This is a much more serious offense that we see here in the book of Revelation. In fact, look at verse number 11. Look there if you would. And uh, God sends the fifth vial on them, and what do they do? Do they repent? Do they, do they understand? No, they just go steeper and deeper into their rebellion and hatred of God. Look at verse 11. And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. Again, you think men in their nature are just going to repent? You think men of their own volition are just going to repent? No, it's not going to happen. It didn't happen then, and it doesn't happen here, and it doesn't happen now. Look at verse 21. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, about 100 pounds, somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. 
you have God bringing judgment after judgment after judgment upon the earth dwellers. And what do they do? They keep getting deeper and more obstinate, more hardened, and all they can do is blaspheme God. It's a stunning thing to behold. You would think when one's getting disciplined, you would repent, but not one who's not been called by God and regenerated by God, they won't. No, they won't. Not even close. Not even, brethren, in the ballpark for an American slaying saying. Not even close. In fact, in verse 11, the title God of heaven is only used twice in the New Testament. Did you know that? Only twice. One other time in Revelation. I want you to see who else calls God the God of heaven. I'll show you. I'll tell you who it is. It is those whom God has drawn, those to whom he has granted repentance, those to whom he has given the gift of faith. They recognize and see God, the God of heaven. Again, only used twice here and in Revelation. Turn there with me, if you would, Revelation chapter 11. Look at this. The only other time it's used, except here, it is a remnant. It is the people of God recognizing who he is from heaven. Look at Revelation 11. Look at verse number 13. This is, again, <laughs> right during some woes that are coming and going. Verse 13, in the same hour there was a great earthquake. The tenth part of the city fell, and the earthquake was, were slain of men, 7,000. And the remnant were affrighted and gave what? Glory to the God of heaven. Do you see that difference there now? In this portion of, of, of the text in Revelation here, chapter 11, repentance is granted by God. Where we are now, it's removed, and men will not repent, period. They won't. They will blaspheme God because of who they are, because of their natures, because of their inborn blood, their hereditary blood, if you will. In fact, each and every time that these beast-worshipping reprobates respond in blasphemy, they are unwittingly testifying to the truth of God's judgment against them. That's what they're doing. Brethren, there is no repenting in hell. Do you realize that? People think, well, people are in hell. They're sorry they're there. They are not sorry they're there. They're not. What's that hour? That's exactly what they're doing. In between the gnawing of the tongue, just like we're going to see in our text, they're blaspheming and blaming God for what the, what's happened. That's exactly what they're doing. Go look it up. Nowhere does the Bible ever teach that someone in hell is repenting. They are not repenting. They are shaking and blaspheming God. They hate God. Yes. It's the exact opposite as us Western Christians have been taught and led to believe. They are not sorry they are there. Pharaoh is not sorry that he was indeed, brethren, a hard-hearted rebel against God that shook, if you will, his, his proverbial hand at God in real earthly time. Let me tell you tonight, brethren, he is now at this very hour doing the same thing in hell. He is shaking his fist at God because he hates God. And so does everyone else that's there. They hate God. Just like these earth dwellers hate God. It's amazing. Again, you think that, well, if, if they understood it, they know it's God. If they understood it, they would repent. They don't repent. They do not. Repentance has been removed. Everyone who is residing in hell right now is continuing to blame and to blaspheme God's holy name. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by it at all. In fact, look at verses 10 and 11. Again, God and his gloriousness and what he's doing here. Revelation chapter 16. Look at verses 10 and 11. As God, again, pours out through the angels the fifth vial. Look at verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness. Now that is a glorious statement that John makes right there. It really is. And they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not. 
of their deeds. Now, this transition that we have here in our text from the fourth vial to the fifth vial is quite striking. (laughs) It really, really is. From the scorching blindness and heat of the sun to an incredible darkness. In fact, it's in an an impenetrable darkness, in fact. I seem to think and remember there was another time where there was an impenetrable darkness that God brought upon those in Egypt. Remember how God, remember how Moses defined that darkness? He said it was so dark you could what? You could feel it. This is the same thing, brother. This is a inky black dark that God is bringing upon this kingdom, this beast and the seat of the beast. Well, let's just quickly, I know, man, is it that late already? Time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? Let me just say this. Up until now, have you noticed, brother, that the beast has been somewhat sheltered from God's onslaught. God's been doing this and sending this judgment over here and doing this. The beast has pretty much been up to this point kind of not protected, but if you will, sheltered. But it is here at God's command that all of that changes. You see, there's always, even when you go back and you look at the plagues of Egypt, and again, this brings to our mind these things that God has done in the past. Do you remember the magicians? Do you remember how many of the uh, plagues that the magicians of Egypt could duplicate? Three. And after the third one, God separated himself. Your magicians might do this, this might do that, but I am God. And here's where I'm going to turn it all, and you will, you, I will separate myself, and the world will know that I am God. That's where we're at right here. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? John tells us that he poured it out on the seat of the beast. What's the seat of the beast? Well, the seat of the beast, as you know, God's divine judgment is directed at the very heart, at the very core of the beast being in power. God is all-powerful. God is omniscient. It is here where he turns his judgment upon the beast, his being, and his power. And I want you to notice something. Where we learned not too long ago where this beast, if you will, was getting his power from. Where was he getting his power? Who's, who's empowering him? Lucifer, Satan. That's where his power is coming from. He is, he's given this power by Satan as God has allowed him to do his thing. And I want us to notice this again. We notice the darkness. The darkness has come. And it is an inky black darkness. It's a darkness like you can feel. What a contrast. This is why God does these things. He contrasts himself, who is indeed, remember what Jesus said, or John the Baptist, remember that? The light came into the world and men loved darkness. Yeah, darkness. Look at Isaiah. This, this is so amazing, brother. And we'll, I'm going to have to, I think, probably, what do I got left here? Well, just a few verses and we'll finish up. Look at Isaiah chapter 14. This is really interesting. And again, keeping in mind, a very familiar portion of Scripture, but keeping in mind that there's an inky black darkness that God has just sent, which is a contrast to himself and also to an imposter. An imposter. One who masquerades as an angel of what? Light. Look at verse 12. Isaiah chapter 14. In fact, Earlier in the text, 9, 10, and 11, you see the judgment of the Antichrist. Look at verse 12. Again, this is interesting. Isaiah writing several thousand years before this even takes place, telling us ahead of time this is what's going to happen. But look at verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How do you like that? Amen? Now, the word Lucifer there literally means light bearer. And remember, the light bearer is the one who's been giving the power to the beast to reign, and God sends darkness on the light bearer. This again, brother, this is nothing light. This is nothing to be trifled at. This is God showing his omnipotence over 
the imposter, if you will. It's an amazing thing. In fact, look what Ezekiel said. Look at Ezekiel chapter 28. And again, brethren, if you ever want a glorious description of the beast, number one, and number two, of Satan, where he came from, you just turn to Ezekiel. Hey, <coughs> can I ask you, brothers, sisters, should we unhook from Ezekiel? Should we unhitch from it? I don't think so. We better not. Ain't <laughs> wrong answer. <laughs> Look at Ezekiel chapter 28. Look at verse number one. This again is a type of the coming beast that Isaiah wrote about several thousand years before we even get to our text. Look at verse number one. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, or because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God, I sit in the what? The seat of God. <laughs> what did God just pour out on the beast? Where did he pour his wrath out at? On the seat of the beast. The beast takes the seat of God, tries to take the seat of God. I am God. God says, oh, no, you're not. I am God, and I'm going to pour my wrath out upon this seat. I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man and not God, though thou set mine heart as the heart of God. Just think of that for a minute, brother. I am a God. I sit in the seat of God. Of course, we understand this has a dual meaning, right? Because we know that the king here actually existed, and the king actually was destroyed by God later on. It's a stunning, the, the similarities there, but what you see is a type, a picture, if you will, of the beast that we're looking at in Revelation. It's an amazing thing. A dual meaning, now but not yet, a type of the coming beast in our text. In fact, we don't have time tonight, but if you go over to verse number 12 of Ezekiel 28, and read verses 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. You'll see they're a type of who? Satan himself. Again, think of this, brothers and sisters, for a moment. The king of Tyre has the ignoble name in Scripture of being a type of the beast and a type of Satan. If you want to know where Satan came from, listen, you understand that God created a cherub, right? Go read it right here. He created a cherub. How did the cherub become Satan? Through his pride, he lifted himself up and he fell. Yeah, think of that for a moment. But this is what you see here. This is the seat. This is his power. This is his being. This is who he is. This is who God is turning his wrath upon. The vial that he's dumping upon on, on the seat of the beast is upon the beast himself and on the source of his power, which is Satan himself. It's amazing. It really is a stunning thing. In fact, look at one New Testament text. You guys all know where I'm going. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Keeping in mind now, God has just sent an inky black darkness over the kingdom of the beast. Lucifer is the light bearer. He's the son of the morning. And look at here what Paul says of him. We're all keenly aware of this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Talking about false prophets, I like that how he, <laughs> brothers, <laughs> listen, this is a place you don't want to be, a false preacher, a liar, one who stands up before and speaks for God and says to speak for God, and he's lying through his teeth, just like, well, Andy Stanley, just like Greer, oh, it won't be long, and you boys are going to be out of safe spaces, because you will indeed be standing as these unbelievers are on the shores of the lake of fire. Yeah, that's right. That's where they're going to end up. Look here at 2 Corinthians 11. Look there at verse number 13. For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves. That word transform there, literally, brothers, it literally means to disguise. They're disguising themselves, literally. There's another word transform that we see in other portions of the script. It's metamorphi. It means to, meta to, to uh, how come I can't think of the word? It's not coming out. Metamorphous. It means to go from one thing to another. This word denotes 
if you will, a disguise. Something they're presenting that they are not. They're disguising themselves. Here's what Paul says. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, disguising themselves. And no marvel, for Satan himself is what? Transformed. He's disguised as an angel of what? Light. God dumps through this angel, this vial, upon the seed of the beast. And it is indeed a judgment upon his very being and his very nature his very power. It's a stunning thing, brother. That, this is why when we hear such crazy things, I rest, I rest easy in the scriptures, brethren, because I know nothing comes to pass, nothing gets executed except through the loving hands of our Father. Amen? Who is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords, we shall soon find out. The beast who is empowered by Lucifer, a light bearer, along with the loyal subject of his soon-to-be-dismantled kingdom. Because when we get moving on in the text, the battle of Armageddon is round up. And I'm telling, there is destruction like you've never seen that God brings. But you see this here. These subjects are submerged by God, by the God of heaven. Use that terminology because they know who that, this is. It is not some other God. It's not hanging out down at, the, down at the Catholic store down over here where we all have our other different gods. We can all have different gods. They, they know this is the God of heaven, the one true God who is doing this. It's a stunning thing. I, I keep saying that. But they are submerged by the God of heaven into, as I've said, an inky black darkness where between the gnawing of their tongues... They blaspheme God, which, brothers and sisters, is again a second preview of hell for them. The scorching of the sun is a preview of hell for them. So is the gnawing of the tongue. So is the blaspheming of God. It is a second preview for them. And I like to say this. I wish I would have thought of this. As they stand there on the shores of the lake of fire. It's a stunning thing. Go to Matthew chapter 22, and we'll close with this text tonight. Listen to Matthew chapter 22. And again, there are too many verses where this language is used. But right here in Matthew chapter 22, listen here, verse number 10, Matthew 22. Listen to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as he describes this very thing, darkness the gnawing of tongues, the, the gnashing of teeth, describing hell. Look at verse, what did I say, number 10. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found. Don't miss this, both bad and good. Now, does that mean there was good people and bad people? No, that means there was people who were invited and were clothed in the, in the righteousness of Christ and others who weren't. They were there. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him away. Into what? Outer darkness, where there shall be what? Gnashing of teeth. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For many are called, but few are what? Chosen. And again, brethren, this is a glorious picture. Over and over and over again. Matthew chapter 25. It goes on and on. Jesus talking about the outer darkness, the gnashing of tongues, the gnashing of teeth. They're just getting a preview of where they're going to be in a very short period of time. Hell and then cast into the lake of fire from there. Stunning thing, isn't it? Let me close tonight as we need to bring this to a close with just a practical point, if I could. There are those who teach, brethren, that mankind is no doubt bad. Mankind is bad. But he has just enough light and goodness in himself to choose Christ, if he so wishes. How many, I mean, 
it's taught every Sunday across the pulpits in our land. A puny God. Men who have authority and power over God. They can do whatever they want. This is what they teach. They say that men fell, or that man fell when Adam sinned, but his fall was not off of a cliff leading to his spiritual death. Remember that? He's got just enough life. He's not dead, he's just sick. However, brethren, this judgment that God has laid out for us here in the book of Revelation teaches us that salvation belongs unto the Lord himself. Think of this again. With repentance being withdrawn, the gift of faith being withdrawn, all of, all of these things God has withdrawn. When he removes his gifts, men cannot and will not repent. It will not happen. It really won't. It requires God's direct, monergistic intervention. No question. Think of this for a moment. If God did not first seek us, if God did not first quicken our dead spirit and save us by his grace alone, I want you to understand something. You think of these gifts that he has given and they're removed. This rebellion and hatred of God that we have seen in our text would be indeed be revealed in you and I. Don't think for a moment that it wouldn't because it would. No question. If it was not for him granting unto his sheep the gifts of repentance and belief. This is why, brethren, we cannot, by man-made inventions and imaginations, Andy, I'm talking to you, Greer, I'm talking to you, any preacher who wants to shut the Bible and lessen up God's judgments, the doctrine of hell, all of these things that are just being brought right before us. You cannot, by man-made inventions, educate people into loving God. You, you understand that. This is the thing, right? These educated, pointy-headed, whatever they are, thinking they can, if we just get the Bible out of it, if we just get these words out of it, these mean things out of it, we can educate people to love God. No, you can't. No, you can't. It is only, brethren, it is only by a changed heart and a regeneration of God that one can even begin to consider it. No man can say, no one can say, Ethiopian, change your skin. No man can say that. Or leopard, change your spots. No man can say that. Only God, who is indeed sovereign over all things, as he is even in his judgments, gloriously being glorified beyond measure in his judgments, because they are right and true and holy. Only he can grant repentance, the gift of life, to be born again, all of these glorious things that we see in Scripture. And in our text, we see what happens when the earth is void of all of them. Men will not repent. They will never come to Christ. They will indeed, as we have seen, even looking up, knowing it's God himself who is sending the hail, who is sending the scorching heat, who is sending these things upon them. All they will do is blaspheme God and spit in his face. Tonight, brethren, again, we are reminded of the glorious age in which we live. That God would be so gracious and kind to us that he would indeed, if you're saved tonight, give you those things that only he can give where one can be saved, period. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, to consider. What does that do, brethren, as I reclose? It better, if you're saved tonight, bring out much thankfulness Thankfulness to the God of heaven. It better bring out a humility as you stand before the God of heaven who indeed 
saves as he sees fit and condemns as he sees fit. It's an amazing thing. Let's pray together. Father, this evening we, we see just so clearly in our text, and of course, systematically throughout the Bible, that men, <laughs> men will not repent. It's not going to happen apart from your great first cause. And Father, we think of our day that we live in. We think of how men are more and more rebelling as sin and wickedness has been opened and is flooding in the streets of our cities, and of our towns, of our counties, our states. Are men more and more today bold and boldened as their sin is let loose, as they're accepted, quote-unquote, as it's, if you will, coddled and brought out of the closet? They are not. More and more calm, they are more and more kind, they are indeed the opposite of that. They are filled with rage. They are filled with hatred. They are filled with hatred towards you. And therefore, they have hatred towards those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled, brethren. This is not going to stop. You think it's going to get better. Hey, just let us come out of the closet. You know, let us have our jobs. Let us just do whatever we're going to do. We won't bother anybody. Oh, no, brethren, that is the farthest thing from the truth. That was a lie that started it. Now they're entering into our churches. They're entering into our homes, trying to. They're entering into our thoughts. They're trying to change the way we think. All of it, it gets worse and worse and more and more evil as it continues. And as we pray tonight, apart from a revival in your church, O oh Lord, apart from a revival in your people, those who are supposed to be on quote-unquote Bible believers, it must start there. We must continue as we do here in our fellowship to be Bible believers, to withstand by your grace and by the power of your spirit, to withstand the tidal wave of ungodliness and unholiness that seeks to seep its way in to our churches, into our church, into our home, into our families. Oh, Lord, let us turn to you. Let us bow the knee unto you. For we know that it is you who is seated in heaven, the God of heaven, who has the power to answer our prayers, to watch over us, to take care of us, to feed us, just to breathe. It gets down to that. Father, may we always love you and trust you and believe in you. We ask now and pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.